This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is 93XRT. I'm Lynn Bramer. And earlier this week, we announced that Pete Townsend's classic Quadrophenia is coming to the Rosemont Theater on September 13th with special guests, Billy Idol, who you've seen in Quadrophenia shows before, Eddie Vedder, who has a long-standing personal and professional relationship with Pete Townsend, and uh, international star of Les Miserables, Alfie Beau, playing the role of Jimmy. We welcome back to the airwaves of WXRT, Pete Townsend. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you, Pete. The last time we uh, spoke, we had a wide-ranging conversation about... uh, uh, residency in the 60s and playing the same clubs over and over again. The advice you gave to Eddie Vedder early on in his career as a fledgling rock star. But when I think about the choices you've made as a musician, as an artist, I feel like you're incapable of doing anything half-heartedly. You know, I, uh, oh, I, 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 I don't know about that. I think that maybe stage performing... Uh, is tricky for me to do half-heartedly, but I was hypnotized. I don't know if you know that story. I don't. <laughs> My father's best friend was a, uh, at school was a, a dentist, and he was one of the first dentists to try hip, 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 hypnotism to reduce pain with his, you know, his patients. This was back, you know, when uh, when. The, the medication that they use was pretty brutal. Anyway, he hypnotized me uh, to always perform to the best of my ability. So that's what I do. <laughs> that is a remarkable story. But it doesn't apply to anything else. Well, well hold, <laughs> hold on a second. You've worked, you've worked in an industry over the years in which uh, the pop single, the quick hit, has has been, you know the center of the intention of the record company and the encouragement to the artist. Yet you come along and maybe a record company's anticipating, oh, they're going to crank out eight nice tight tunes for us. And you suggest, hey, how about a double album rock opera? Well, you know, there was a, there was a hit in there, you know, with, uh, with, with, with Tommy, we had a hit with, uh, with uh, Pimble Wizard, only one hit, but was enough. And with Cordofina, we had a hit with 515, you know, and uh, probably should have had a hit with Love, Rain, or Me. But um, I've never lost sight of the idea that the format for, for, for the pop audience is that they have an attention span of the flea. <laughs> um, but I've also wanted to, you know, maybe that's unfair. I mean, pop music fits the modern world, and it has really since the 60s. You know, it's not just in the modern day that we run around like ants. You know, we started to do that back maybe in the late 50s and early 50s, early 60s. And, 
And remember that in the UK, uh, pop radio really didn't take off until pirate radio happened in the late 60s. Right. Sorry, the mid-60s. And eventually was, it was taken over by, you know, commercial stations uh, more broadly. But so once that happened, music was something that, w that tended to, to be, uh, pop music was something that we tended to hear on the move. And that hadn't been the case before. You know, we would buy records by artists that we liked when we were kids like Bill Haley or Elvis Presley or the Everly Brothers. Or if we were jazz fans, we would buy stuff by Louis Armstrong. We would take it home and we would listen to it. But once the radio took off, just like in America, uh, it became something that was consumed on the run. And I think that's very much the way it is now. So when I started to think about doing something that might have... Uh, more impact on the stage in a one-and-a-half or two-hour show, uh, which is really why I started to write long-form concept work was for stage performances, not necessarily for albums, was um, I thought I had to stick to the three- or four-minute single. And, and Tommy and Quadrophenia are uh, patchworks of, of, uh, of short pieces of music. Well, well, clearly for, for me and, and for all the fans of The Who and people that went out and bought Tommy and Quadrophenia, it was never really just about, hey, what's the hit song on here? And as you say, you've always been very conscious of the fact that you're working in an arena where whatever you're trying to convey, you can do in four, five, six, seven-minute swatches. But for fans of The Who, it was really about all the songs on these albums. I mean... I, I can't imagine a time when the temptation was not to put the needle down on the first song, first side, and just listen to that, but to immerse yourself in this music. And I, I think that speaks to the way that you've made full commitments to your art and your music and your performance. Well, that sounds a bit kind of elitist in a way. I mean, I mean not, you, what, not what you do, but, but, but what I set out to do. I think anybody listening who's sort of under 50, is not going to really understand. Uh, you know, young people are buying vinyl now because they think it's cool. Well, it is cool. It sounds different to what we get on our, out of our computer, but, you know, it's a clumsy, cumbersome, and also very oil-based oil medium. You know, if we stop using uh, petrol in our cars, maybe vinyl will come back, I don't know, in a bigger way. But, um, you know, the, 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 the thing today is if... The, you know, I think artists are producing long-form concept works. You know, I think Kendrick Lamar's... Pimp the Butterfly was a concept album. I just think it's hard to see uh, how the audience will ever sit down with that record and listen to it sequenced the way that Kendrick Lamar and uh, 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 his bass player, um, that, that guy Thundercat, and the other musicians and producers on the record probably sat to listen to it. You know, they probably put the tracks up and listened to them in sequence and thought, hey, this record sounds great. You know, we're happy with it as it is. No, but, what, but the question would be, what's the story? And with that particular record, what you hear is a, a young man's journey kind of into a spiritual world from, you know, from Compton. You know, it's very much like the, the Quadrophenia story. Uh-huh. It's um, about 
alienation and use? Yeah, and... I think so, alienation. Also, the other interesting thing about uh, Pimp the Butterfly is, is Kendrick Lamar's mother makes several appearances. I don't mean she sings. But he, he he talks about his mother and he talks about his local church and he, he, he refers to it in passing. So you, guess what, in Quadrophenia, it starts off with a song, Can You See the Real Me? I went back to the preacher. I went back to my mother. You know, these are, this is a, these are perennial themes. I just think today nobody is going to sit down with a piece of vinyl and listen to the whole of the Kendrick Lamar album. You know, they should, even if they like heavy rock. It's a really good album, and I think they would enjoy it. But there you go. I'm not plugging somebody else's record here. <laughs> <laughs> I just happen to like that one. Anyway. Well, here you are bringing one of your masterworks to the stage at the Rosemont Theater, where you have performed before with Eddie Vedder, uh, a wonderful show that you did, did to raise money for Teen Cancer America. And once again, September 13th, you're bringing, uh, I think my initial comments sort of were in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, he could have done this the easy way, and he could have shown up in solo acoustic or a small band, but you're coming with friends and musicians, Eddie Vedder and Billy Idol, and you're also involving the musical community of Chicago, which is, in my memory, unusual. It doesn't always happen that you you say, well, let's see if we can involve the Chicago Children's Choir and the Chicagoland Pops Orchestra to be part of this big show. You know, what was interesting when we recorded uh, uh, the album in London was the London Philharmonic have obviously done a lot of film scores. And when film scores are recorded these days, they tend to record to what we call a click. The click will often be rhythmic. It'll often just be tick, 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 tick. But occasionally when the music uh, moves to the, to the emotional nuance of the scene, it will slow down or speed up. When we recorded the uh, album, with Alfie Bow, we didn't. We decided. Rachel, my wife, uh, who orchestrated this, decided not to use click. We wanted the musicians to feel the music and to have their own, you know, what musicians call chops, to have their own rhythmic sensibilities. How has the the album and the music of Quadrophenia changed for you over the years and as an experience? Well, it's the one piece that I did where I, I actually tried to do some orchestration, you know, using the instruments that were available to me at the time, which were all of the brass instruments that John Impwistle could play, which was pretty much everything. Uh -huh. He could play pretty much everything. But also I can play a little bit of violin, my own violin playing, and then anything that I could reproduce Using one of the very early synthesizers that were available at the time, I had a large studio uh, synthesizer made in, in uh, uh, Massachusetts called an ARP, an American system. And uh, I, so I could reproduce strings, I could reproduce flutes, oboes, uh, and that kind of thing. And I had a few special techniques for, produce, for producing... Um, uh, staccato strings and, and various other string effects, including bowing, slow bowing. Uh -huh. So, you know, I, I, when I sat down with, with Rachel, I, I wanted a score from her. I didn't necessarily want an album. I just wanted a score. And uh, I wanted, you know, I'm, I'm 
73 next birthday, I think, well, if I live to be 90, I'll be damn lucky. But, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, I will want to have something in a drawer somewhere, which is an approved score from me by most of, if not all of, the conceptual works that I've been involved in, so that they can not just be played by symphony orchestras, but, uh, but also played by any orchestra, you know, by anybody that wants to play it, including school orchestras or school bands or whatever. I wanted it written out. So she did that, and we, 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 she was very, very faithful to what was on the album. Well, uh, it's going to be a great night. It's September 13th. Tickets go on sale tomorrow. Tickets go on sale today. Uh, you can get all the information you need at 93XRT.com. You know, the first time I ever heard a synthesizer, on a stage, Forest Hills T- Tennis Stadium, 1971, The Who, starting The Who's Next Tour, and Won't Get Fooled Again starts, and nobody's playing an instrument, and uh, this music is emanating, you know, the beginning of the song is emanating from the stage, and I start to freak out, because I'm looking around at my friends and going, where is that coming from? Well, that, 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 what it was, it was, of course, a synthesizer that I'd recorded in my home studio, but it was, we were the first band to use what is now very, very uh, widely used, which was backing tapes. And, um, and uh, we used backing tapes for Won't Get Fooled Again and for Barbara O'Reilly. They would have been pretty complicated to perform on stage, although maybe these days it would be possible. Back then it wouldn't have been. Um, Feasible, good idea. Uh, you know, before we let you go, Pete... There's one other aspect of your visits to Chicago that fascinate me. Um, you're a sailor. I didn't know that. Yeah, big time. <laughs> now, now, do you depend on the, the uh, kindness of strangers? Do you have your own sailboat? I wish I had one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got, my, I've got two enthusiasms, and they kind of, uh, they kind of interchange. It used to just be home studios. So I used to have a home studio, and, and I sometimes had a studio and a suitcase that I would take with me on the road. And then um, in the, I think it was the 70s, 1976, I went for a long summer holiday in the UK, in a place called Cornwall, which is a little bit like Maine, fishing, rough seas, pretty strange weather. Anyway, it was a good summer. And uh, I'd uh, had a little boat built, and I started to learn to sail, and that's where I learned to sail. So I learned to sail in the, some of the worst seas that we have in the, in the UK. Right. It's called the, the Lizard and Land's End. And, and uh, so I oscillate between buying shit for my home studio right. <laughs> and, um, and buying boats and running them. And I've got a recording studio on a barge in London in St. Catherine's Dock, right by Tower Bridge and right by the Tower of London, which is a commercial studio. And so in that, which I built in 1976, funnily enough, I combined my passion for boats and my, compassion, my passion for studios. I, I a Freudian slip there. Compassion is what I need. <laughs> I uh, I spend far too much on all this stuff. But you know, I I do love to sail, and uh, in fact, uh, Mary Beth, who is organising uh, the the show for us here for TCA, she's a big supporter of TCA. She and I met 
for the first time in 1989 when the Who were in Chicago for their 25th anniversary concert. And we went out for a party. for It was the birthday of our makeup girl, and uh, who's called Nancy. And, um, and I met uh, Mary Beth, and we were friends ever since. And we met on a boat, uh, which went out to look at the skyline. And so I've always had tremendous fondness for for doing that. I was offered a ride on a boat today, but I turned it down. I need a I need a break. You so. need a break at some point. Take it from me. I'm a professional. <laughs> you need a break now and then. Now let me just ask you before we let you go. What kind of sailor are you? Are you a uh, let's just keep things nice and steady, or you are a sort of we need more sail. Let's get the rail in the water. You know, I do I do it all. <laughs> I I do it all. I race. Uh, a lot. I'm very good at it. I have won a lot of cups. I do classic racing in the Mediterranean with a little boat that was built in Scotland, which is over 100 years old. Uh, I've had more modern boats, and I've done very well with those in the Mediterranean. I have three years running. I, I won the Prada Cup. I uh, I have a big boat that I sometimes race, which is rather slow, but we've done okay with that too. Uh, and I started in Cornwall doing um, racing on a little boat called a J24, which will be familiar to a lot of Americans because they have a class here. Sure. So I've, I've done a bit of all of it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't like doing really, really long passages. I, I, it's not that I get bored. You kind of get into the rhythm of it. I've never crossed the Atlantic, for example. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that I've done too much traveling. So. Yeah. Well, uh, Pete, do you sail? You sail. I, I, I love to sail, and what I'm thinking about is for a, for a guy who's been on a stage at Woodstock or whatever, surrounded by mountains of amplifiers, there is that moment when you take a sailboat, a bigger sailboat, out on Lake Michigan or out on the ocean, where you're running the engine and you raise the sails and you click off the engine, and it's nothing but the breeze. Yeah, that's right. It's um, you know, and I've I've written a few songs about that. One, the one really that is based on sailing is a, is called "A Little Is Enough" from one of my solo albums, and and in that I use just about every sailing analogy that's possible without actually talking about rope. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, make sure when you get here, you leave a little time for yourself to have somebody take you out on a sailboat on Lake Michigan. And it sounds like as a racer, you might want to think about the the Mackinac, the famous. Mackinac race from Chicago up to northern Michigan. Wow, that sounds great. But, you know, I'm, I've, I've never actually raced outside the U.K. or the Med. Not yet, anyway. I've, I, oh, no, that's not true. I have raced in the Newport bucket, and I came second. So, <laughs> so that wasn't too bad. That, was that my doesn't very, sound bad at all. No, it was my first race. All we, right. we should have been first, but I, I'll tell you the tell you the reason why we weren't first uh, 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 to make sure it doesn't come out on a Sunday. It was something to do with a, a boat full of girls who had promised to reveal parts of their body to the organizer if they could be placed first. <laughs> That's a, that sounds very much like a bribe. That, that sounds like old school Chicago stuff. <laughs> well, that was in Newport. Anyway, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, Pete, very great to talk to you. And uh, by way of an introduction, is there, you know, if I were to play a single song from Quadrophenia right now, 
What is the song that comes to mind to you that uh, sticks with you? You know, the one the one I like playing the best is 515. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the version on the Who album, the version on the, uh, uh, the orchestral album, they're both great. Uh, and, uh, but you know, the song that really, uh, tells the story is Love Rain On Me. You know, it's a song sung by a young man, you know, who's really at the start of his life, who is facing one of those moments when everything that he thought would deliver him a direction and, and a reason for being, uh, is somehow suddenly empty. And, uh, and so Quadrophenia ends with another beginning, and a lot of people like to think about where it would go. So I think Love Rain On Me would be the one. Well, that's a, a fitting conclusion to yet another entertaining conversation with Pete Townsend. And uh, September 13th, Pete Townsend, classic Quadrophenia, coming to the Rosemont Theater, an intimate place. If you haven't been there to see Pete Townsend, Billy Idol, Eddie Vedder, Alfie Bow, the Chicagoland Pops Orchestra, and Chicago Children's Choir. We look forward to seeing you, Pete. Thanks so much. I hope there's room for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make room. I hope to see you there, Lynn. Oh, you certainly will. Pete Townsend Fantastic. on 93XRT. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.